morning. Well, this is the time of year when people enjoy listening to Christmas carols. How many of you are going to go home and listen to the carol, Good King Wenceslas? Is that a favorite of anybody in the room? One person? It's probably not a carol that's on your top 10 list, and there's a lot of good reasons for that, actually. First of all, it's very difficult to even pronounce this guy's name. There's like six pronunciations that are out there, and to be honest, I just picked one at random. The lyrics of the song are a little confusing, and if you don't know the backstory, they make no sense at all. So I thought I would do a little public service thing this morning and uh, share with you the story of King Wenceslas. And uh, it turns out it's actually a very interesting one. Uh, King Wenceslas was uh, the Duke of Bohemia, which is now a part of the Czech Republic, around the 10th century or so. And uh, when he gained the throne at age 18, his biggest desire was to influence the people that he ruled over by living out his Christian faith in front of them. And in fact, on Christmas Day, he began a tradition of walking through the castle and he would stuff gold coins into the hands of everyone that he met there, from the greatest in the castle to the least. And he would even go down to the dungeon, down the stairway, and bless the prisoners who were there. And everybody really appreciated everything he was doing, except for one person. The story goes that there was an old woman who was being held in the castle prison, and when he offered her his blessing, she rejected it. And he was totally taken aback, and and he pointed out that he had charitably given away golden coins to everyone in the castle and that he would be happy to bless her as well, but still uh, she refused. And, And it says that she lifted up her head and she stared at him with these piercing blue eyes, And she said these words. She said, The scummiest jailer in your castle is a lord in comparison to the peasants outside. You have no idea what it means to live in a hovel, to freeze in the depths of winter, to have rags for clothes and a few sticks for a fire. Throw coins at your groveling servants if it makes you feel good before you stuff yourself with rich food. Only don't talk to me of your false charity. Well, when the king left the dungeon and he walked back up those stairs, the joy of Christmas had been stolen from his heart. But another thing happened too. For the first time, the king's eyes were open to the poverty and the hunger that was being experienced outside of the castle by the people that he he ruled. And this really had tremendous impact on him. And he made it his mission in life to provide for and protect anyone who might be in need throughout his kingdom. In fact, one of his early biographers wrote these words soon after the king's death. He wrote, rising every night from his noble bed with bare feet and only one chamber lane, he went around to God's churches and gave alms generously to widows, orphans, those in prison and afflicted by every difficulty, so much so that he was considered not a prince, but a father of all the wretched. Now, unfortunately, the reign of King Wenceslas did not last Uh, After only 10 short years, the king, who his biographer said was like a father to the people, was assassinated by his own brother. 
He may have been a good king, but it turns out he was not an immortal king. Well, this morning, the passage that we are going to look at tells us about another good king, one who also will be like a father to his people. But unlike King Wenceslas, we are told that this king will live and rule and reign forever and ever. And if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, Uh, It's on page 573 if you're using one of the Bibles around us. We are going to continue our series uh, today studying Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Uh, Tom is actually going to conclude it on Tuesday evening, excuse me, tomorrow evening, Christmas Eve, at our service at 7 o'clock. But let's take a look at this wonderful verse together, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather here this morning. We thank you that we can come in exactly the frame of mind and heart we are. We thank you that because of what your son has done for us in dying in our place, we can be accepted by you. And so we come with that confidence today. We pray that you would focus our minds and hearts on what it is that we are seeking to learn from in your word today. We thank you that you have given us this book so that we're not in the dark as far as who you are and and what you've done and what you expect and desire from us. So we pray today that you would give us open ears and soft hearts and sharp minds as we not only consider these things, but as we seek to apply them in our lives. Would you help us in that process, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as a review to the series, the chapter that we're looking at this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, can, can be thought of as kind of a, a calm in the center of a hurricane. Uh, in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet tells his own people, the children of Israel, that as a consequence of their idolatry and hard-heartedness against God and their wickedness towards one another, that a storm of God's discipline and his judgment is on the horizon. He says that God is going to raise up enemy nations around Israel and bring about the destruction of Israel through a terrible war. It's very, very bad news. However, in chapter 9, the bad news is interrupted by some very good news. Isaiah says that even though this judgment will be necessary and is entirely appropriate, that it will not last forever. Because in the future, God is going to bring out a peace that will last forever. A freedom from oppression that will be for all time, eternal joy and gladness, the destructions of all the weapons of war which will no longer be necessary. God is going to bring about, Isaiah says, something that will last forever and ever, and that will be the kind of life that every human being longs for and desires from the deepest places in the human soul. 
And so, what would it be that God would do to bring all of this about? Well, Isaiah tells us in in verse 6, he says that God is going to send into the world a son. And that this son, who is given to us from God, would be unlike any other human being who has ever lived. This son, Isaiah says, will hold the government on his shoulders. Or, to put it another way, he says, this son will rule everything. The son of God, Isaiah says, will be a king. And Isaiah ascribes to him four titles that describe the kind of character that this king is going to have. He will be called by four names, and each one of the four uh, expresses an aspect of his character. Now, we've been investigating what each of these titles mean, and two weeks ago we saw that he would be called a wonderful counselor. And what that means is that he would be a supernatural leader who knows exactly how to solve every problem of this world. And not only does he know how to do it, but he's willing to do it. And not only is he willing to do it and know how to do it, but he's able to do it. He is competent to do it. He's a wonderful counselor. And not only that, then last week we looked at the fact that he would be the mighty God, that this son would be both God and man, and because of this, he and he alone is able to save and to judge and to rule. Well, today we're going to think about the idea that God's son Jesus would be an everlasting father. What does that mean? Jesus is an everlasting father. Well, here's where we're going today. First of all, I want to explain to you what this doesn't mean. Second of all, I want to explain to you what it does mean and give to you a couple of examples. Thirdly, I want to just briefly share with you how this lines up with Christmas so well. And then finally, I want to talk a little baseball. So, in order to understand what this doesn't mean, we've got to do a little thinking, like some deep thinking for about three minutes, okay? And the reason that we've got to do that is because at first glance, the title for Jesus of eternal father is a little bit confusing. The reason is that it seems to mess with a very important concept in the Bible, and and that is the concept that God exists as a trinity. Now, Christians uh, use the word trinity as a shorthand expression for a concept that's very evident throughout the Bible, and that is that God exists as three distinct persons. The first person of the Trinity is God the Father. The second person of the Trinity is Jesus the Son. And the third person of the Trinity is God the Holy Spirit. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each person in the Trinity is fully and equally God. And each person in the Trinity enjoys a perfect relationship with one another. So just in summary, as a trinity, God is one God, and he is three persons, both at the same time. Now, is that clear? Does everybody understand that perfectly? I hope not, okay? If you're a little confused by that, if it, if it sort of strains your brain a little bit to try to figure out what that means, don't blame your brain. It's not your brain's fault. In fact, scholars have studied the Trinity for for all of their lives who are much smarter than we are, and, and they don't really understand it either. And the reason is that even though there's a lot that we understand about God, 
He's, he's too great for us to fathom everything. But anyhow, what makes this expression eternal father particularly confusing here is that the title eternal father is clearly not being assigned to the first person of the Trinity, right? God the Father. But instead, it's being assigned to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Son, right? So you've got to ask yourself, now wait a minute, how can the Son be the Father? Isn't the Father the Father? Or are there two fathers? And if there's two fathers, does that mean there's two sons? And what does the Holy Spirit have to do with this? And do you see what I mean? It's just, it's a little bit slightly confusing. So let me try to clear this up. First of all, this text here in Isaiah is saying that Jesus will be an eternal father. However, it is not meant to be in reference to the Trinity, okay? So all that to say, this has nothing to do with everything I just said, okay? (laughs) Take the Trinity, put it over here. Instead, the expression eternal father being used of Jesus is an idiom. It's a figure of speech that Isaiah is using, and it's a figure of speech that was common not only in this day and time in the ancient world, but it's actually also an idiom that is used in the book of Isaiah. And I want to show that to you. I don't want to just say that. I want to show you that that's true uh, so that you can understand that what, what's being discussed here. So let me give you an example. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 22, you don't need to turn there, but you can if you want to. Later on in the book, God uh, declares that he is going to remove from his position of power one of the highest ranking officials in Jerusalem, a man whose name was Shebna. Now, the reason that God decided to get rid of him is because he was kind of a loser and he was a very selfish leader. But God says not only is he going to get rid of Shebna, but he's going to replace him with a much different official, a man whose name is Eliakim, and Eliakim is a much better man. Okay, so here we have this this transition of power. God is talking here to Shebna, and let me read this for you, Isaiah 22, 20 through 21. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, Shebna, and will bind your sash around him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he, Eliakim, shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Okay, now that passage is not saying that Eliakim is going to become the actual father of the people, right? It is not a story of the largest adoption that's ever happened in the history of the world. What it is trying to say is that Eliakim is going to lead very differently from Shebna. Eliathan is, or or, uh, what's his name? Yeah, that guy. (laughs) He is going to lead and hold his authority over the people, God says, with the heart and the disposition and the temperament of a father. There are leaders in the world who, like Shebna, rule by using their people to gain power for themselves. And then there are leaders like Eliakim who rule by using their power to serve and care for other people like a dad would do. And King Jesus 
the eternal father, Isaiah says, is going to be a ruler in the style of Eliakim, someone who cares for his people with a fatherly heart, a king who rules with the disposition of a dad. Now, let me share with you another example, um, this time of what this type of fatherly leadership looks like from a king, and not only what it looks like, but what it feels like. Uh, It comes out of the life of a man named David. You may be a bit familiar with David. He was one of the greatest people who lived in the Old Testament, and he was the second king of Israel. But his life started out in, in a much humbler style. He was a shepherd boy, and later when he gave up tending the sheep, he became a very mighty warrior, and then finally, sometime later, he became the king. And what happened in David's life is something I think that often happens in our lives. David used all of the time that, excuse me, God used all of the time that David had spent out in the fields in the middle of nowhere in his hometown of Bethlehem. And then all of the giants that he faced, like Goliath in battle, over time to, to just shape him into a very unique king. David was a very, very imperfect person, but the Bible says that he had one thing really going for him, and that was that he was a man after God's own heart. What that means is that David desired God more than anything else. David wanted to know him, and he wanted to be more like him, and he wanted to serve his people as king in a way that that, that the Lord would, would do it if he were in his place. And I think you have a wonderful example of this in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 23. You don't have to turn there, but uh, David, uh, just to give you a little bit of background on this, David had a group of 37 warriors who were called his mighty men. And these guys were absolutely astounding. They were extremely powerful warriors, and they were highly loyal to David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, what we get is a glimpse not only of their strength and their power, but also of the incredible devotion and loyalty that they had towards David. And in this passage, what they decided to do is they decided to surprise him. But David, let's just say, turns the tables around on them and decides to surprise them right back. So the situation takes place during a time when David was at war with a group of people called the Philistines. And the Philistines had captured David's hometown of Bethlehem. And not only had they taken it, but they had turned uh, Bethlehem into uh, their garrison, which is like a military command post. So the town of Bethlehem was extremely well guarded. It was like a fortress, and now Bethlehem had become the heart of enemy territory. And around this time, David was hiding out in in a cave with some of his mighty men, and apparently he was feeling rather sad and nostalgic about the loss of Bethlehem. And the text says that David longingly sighed to himself, Ah, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. What David was longing for was was just a sip of water from his childhood home. Have you ever noticed that the water that you grew up with is the best water? You ever notice that? There's no water like the water you grew up with. When I was young, um, I used to think that the water 
from the downstairs bathroom sink in my house. No other, no other sink in the house. But from the downstairs bathroom sink was the best water in the whole world. And, and, and I had to give up that water about 15 years ago when my parents sold this house. Um, but when they sold the house, the people who purchased the house asked them if they, needed it, if they knew of any good churches in the area. And my parents said, we do, in fact. And so the, the people that bought the house have attended the church ever since. And a few weeks ago, we were over visiting their house. And uh, sure enough, one of my children had to use the bathroom, the downstairs bathroom. <laughs> and so I went in with them. And while I was there, I took a drink just to make sure that the water was how I remembered it. And you know what? It was. There is no water in the world like downstairs bathroom water. (laughs) And for David, the best water in the world was water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. But he knew that he couldn't have it. Or could he? Three of his mighty men overheard these words. And you know what they did? In the dead of night, they crept out of the cave, they saddled up their horses, and they rode off to Bethlehem. And when they got there, the text says that they broke through the garrison of the Philistines. It doesn't just say that they snuck in. It says they broke in Rambo style, okay? There was likely a great fight that went down. And when they got through, they found the well the one that sat by the gate, and one of them quickly pulled up some water and put it in a jar while the other two guarded him. And then they fought their way back out. They galloped home to present their gift to their king. And and you can imagine that these men must have been so excited to see the look on David's face. They thought that he would be so pleased and so grateful But in the end, he was not at all. Look at how the text says he responds in in verse 16. It, It says, but he would not drink it. What? David wouldn't drink it? Why not? He They had gone through so much trouble for this. But the text says not only would he not drink it, but it says that David opened up the jar and he actually took the water and he poured it out before the Lord. Okay? David dumped that water on the ground. And can you imagine what the men thought when they saw that? Ah, no, David. Oh, why would you do that? Do do you realize what that cost us? And in verse 17, it says that David said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, that I should drink this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. The men might have said, come on, David. We risked our lives to bring you this glass of water. And David said, yes, that is exactly the problem. You risked your lives to bring me a glass of water? Now, now certainly this must have meant a lot to David, the fact that these men would serve their king so joyfully that they would desire to do something like this and and to go through all of the effort to bring him this water. What's clear from this text and, and clear at other places in the life of David is that these men loved David. 
David was much more than just a ruler over them. To these men, David was a a father figure. And, And you know why David was a father figure to them? Well, he was a father figure because he treated them like sons. He was a king who treated his servants like sons. And David pours out the water, not because he didn't want it, not because he really wasn't longing for it, not because he didn't realize in his mind that this may be the last opportunity he ever had to drink that water from his childhood. He dumped out the water because he loved these men and he considered their lives to be precious in his sight and the thought of one of them being injured or dying just so that he could have a sip of water made him want to throw up. David's instinct was to protect. And his instinct was to make sure that not a single one of his men ever pulled off a stunt that stupid again. And I'll tell you, I really love this passage. I really love that story. Because in it, I think what you see is the kind of relationship that a king and his people are meant to have. And it's foreign to us. We don't experience this anymore. But imagine a government like that. A government where you loved your king enough to risk your life for him and where your king wouldn't allow it because he cared too much about you. Now, when Isaiah calls Jesus eternal father, I think that the intended meaning was something like this, that Jesus would be a fatherly-minded king who cares more about his own people than himself, who, like David, treats his people like they are his children and who uses his power to serve and to protect and to cherish their lives with all of his might and for all of eternity. And you know, the the story of Christmas for us is really evident that that's the kind of king that Jesus is. Because Christmas shows us the kind of heart that Jesus has, that he's a good king, that, that he's the best king. I mean, think about this for just a second. Jesus didn't become king after Christmas, right? He didn't become king after the cross when he went back and and, and rose into heaven. Jesus is the eternal king, so he's been the king for all eternity. But ask yourself, what kind of king sets aside the power, the splendor, the wonder, the majesty of heaven to be born in a dingy old barn without even a bed, with only a manger with some some scratchy straw in the middle of nowhere in the town of Bethlehem? What kind of king makes that trade? What kind of king takes his royal scepter with which he uses to rule and create all things and sets that down and picks up a hammer to spend his life working diligently as a carpenter? What kind of king says goodbye to choirs upon choirs, multitudes of angels who sing him praises day and night and trades that instead for mobs of angry demonstrators who are demanding that he die? What kind of king, really, what kind of king gives up a throne and trades it for a cross? 
What kind of king dies for the mistakes of his own people? What kind of king does that? What kind of king considers the lives of others to be more precious than his own? And what kind of king loves his people to the fullest extent of his love? And no matter what promises that he will never stop loving them that way for all time. It is only the king who loves his people with a father's love. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a man whose name was Sean Cunningham. And uh, he decided to do something nice for his son Landon on his ninth birthday. He took him to a Pirates baseball game. And during the game, at one point, Landon was texting a picture of the game to his mom because Landon was so excited to be there with his dad when uh, the batter who was swinging lost control of his bat and the bat went hurling up into the stands uh, straight for Landon. Here's a picture of that exact moment. You see Landon there finishing up his text? You see the bat heading for him? Here's what happened next. Dad. Dad happened. Landon's father reached out his arm, deflected the bat, and he saved his son either from serious injury or possibly from death. And Sean said later in an interview, I didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it. It was dad mode, you know, protecting my son. I just did what I could. Now let me wrap this up. When Isaiah calls Jesus the eternal father, what that means is that Jesus rules in dad mode. He rules with the heart and the disposition and the temperament of a father and that he does this eternally. He doesn't just rule this way when he's having a good day. He doesn't just rule this way when he feels like it. He doesn't just rule this way when his children deserve it. But Jesus rules the heavens and the earth and he provides and he protects for all of those who put their faith in him. This passage tells us in dad mode forever and ever. And I hope this Christmas as you go home and, and hopefully read the story and sing the carols and, and you, you teach your children if you have them about all of those things that happened in Bethlehem. I hope that as you consider what Jesus has done, that you would recognize that he truly is the good king with the heart of a father. And that is still true this morning, now and for always. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for these titles that you gave Isaiah to write down for us. How wonderful they are. How much confidence and hope do they bring in your son, Jesus? How they make us desire to want to bow our lives down before him and to adore him and to be the kind of people that put a smile on Jesus' face like David's mighty men brought that smile to his face. And yet we only do that because Jesus has treated us like his own children. Thank you so much that You sent him and he agreed joyfully to come 
down to this earth, to the cross, to die for our sins. We thank you that for any person who puts their faith and trust in him, because of that sacrifice on our behalf, because he died in our place, our sins can be forgiven and restored. There is no better gift that could be given this Christmas. And there is no greater giver than the one who would give us hope and a future in you. We pray that you would give us hearts that desire to worship your son. Hearts that are stirred in their affections towards him. We thank you that Jesus loves us like a father and we pray that we this Christmas would come to him as his children. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.